0: A warrior, I'm too afraid to lose. I feel unqualified for what you call me to the Lord with your strength. I've got no excuse. Cause broken people are exactly who you use, so give me faith. Trust you, Lord. Fall. Gonna stand up, step out when you call. Say Jesus. Say Jesus. Gonna sing and shout and shake the walls. I won't stop until I see you fall. Gonna step out.
1: Let's say you're getting set up this fall at Wichita State University. I'm always proud of our local university when I travel because I'm always amazed it even on the East Coast and West Coast, how many experts and pros have good things to say about Wichita State? It is a world-class university. So let's say you're enrolling there and you're sitting down with your faculty advisor. You've, you've been accepted, you paid your money, but now you're trying to figure out what you want to study. And so she's asking you, well, what, what is it that you're interested in? And you say, I want a degree program that shows me the future. I want to know what's going to happen in the future. And she would say, well, we have some schools here at the university that sort of work on the future. There's some sociological uh, aspects of a school here that might talk about the future. And there's business. We have a great business program here, and it analyzes the future. And, and we, have, uh, we have several different programs here that would talk about the future. But you're not satisfied yet. So you're saying, well, okay, I'm, that's great. Uh, I'm going to study the future. But tell me what the basis is of these studies is. And she would say, well, it just it works sort of like this. Uh, the, the pros analyze the trends, and then they project what's going to happen in the future. And you would say, wait a minute, that's not what I want to study. Uh, you're saying they study the past in order to figure out the future, and you're saying, I don't know if that really is genuine or not. It might be helpful, but that's yesterday's metrics. So I want a program that will help me know the future. And she would say to you, I'm sorry, we just don't have a program like that. And you would say, well, maybe it's a graduate program or a postgraduate program. No, no, we don't even have anything like that in postgraduate work here at Wichita State. In fact, if you knew the basketball scores of last season before they happened, you would never have to work again a day in your life because we just don't have any program here that knows the future. And you would say, well, perhaps it's an Ivy League school that will help me with that. But you know, of course, that I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious for this single reason. As much as human beings may learn, we are locked out of the future. I mean, you can find the brightest people on our planet, and we respect them for their intelligence, but they can't tell us what's going to happen in 10 minutes. They may guess, but at the same time, we're cognizant of the fact that it is only a guess because human beings cannot know the future unless something called revelation happens. The root word of the word revelation is the word reveal. So consequently, the only way that we can know the future is someone who knows the future has to tell us what the future is. Other than that, as we've said, it's just projection. It's just guesswork. And it might be right and it might be wrong. And as we know, when we look at the past, the past can tell us a whole lot, but the past still can't tell us what's going to happen a half hour from now. There is only one person who can reveal the future, and that person is God. We read this in the book of Isaiah chapter 42, and I'm going to read you the eighth and ninth verse, and I think these are two of the most important verses in your Bible. Has anyone ever handed you a business card? I mean, as if to say, this is who I am. This is what I do. That's what business cards do. They tell you the person's name. They tell you the company they work for, and ultimately the goods or services that they provide. So we're we're familiar with that. Many of you are in business, and you hand out business cards. It is your introduction well, it's, it's as if in Isaiah 42, eight and nine, God is handing us his business card. Let's look at this. God says, I am the Lord. That's who I am. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else or share the praise I deserve with idols. So in essence, God is saying, this is what distinguishes me. This is what sets me apart from all other beings in the universe. I am God, and that is my name. And, and I don't share my glory Well, glory is a difficult word to define. What is glory? Glory is a big word. It's a word that only really comes from God. There are only two kinds of glory in the world. There is inherent glory, which God possesses and we do not. And then there is bestowed glory, which we do possess as followers of Jesus Christ. But when we think about glory, it means it's it's Godness. And so what God is going to do after he says, I will not share my glory, he's got a tagline here in which there's an aspect of his glory that is singular and refers only to God. Let me read the whole text again. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else or the praise I deserve to idols. Here's his tagline. What I said in the past has come true. I will reveal new things before they happen. Prophecy is something that only God does one of the questions that i've been asked through the years especially when i'm in a secular environment and like let's just say i'm at a university and i'm talking to students when it's q and a time i will often get the question aren't all religions alike i never quite know what to do with that question because the first challenge i have with that i do not believe what we believe if we are bible believers i don't believe it's a religion See, religion is a nomenclature invited by, uh, inv- uh, 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 in, that's been started by human beings in the help of codifying or in the hope of codifying things. So when I think about religion per se as a definition, I, I, I understand that human beings have tried their best to say this is how God thinking develops. But for us, I believe when we look at the Bible, we have the Word of God. So consequently, when someone says, aren't all religions the same, I struggle with that because I don't believe what we believe is a religion. However, I understand the context in which they're asking the question. And in its prima facie, prima facie context, I do not believe that all religions are the same because the one thing that the Bible does that other so-called sacred books does not do, do not do is the Bible tells us the future. It, it is prophetic in nature. Over one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. Think about that. If you hold a Bible in your lap, or if you have an electronic device with you right now through which you're reading the Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible, over 1,100 chapters. One-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. That's over 1,800 prophecies. Hundreds of them have already come to pass with 100%, with 100% this is an important adjective for me, testable accuracy. One more time, I want to make that statement. Hundreds of Bible prophecies have already come to pass with 100% testable accuracy, often being fulfilled by God's enemies who don't know what the Bible has to say. And if they did, they would have nothing to gain and much to lose by fulfilling biblical prophecy. There are many prophecies about the coming of Jesus the first time in our Bible, and Some of those talk about his birth, some of them talk about his life, but a lot of the prophecies talk about his death, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 22 is perhaps the most graphic depiction, verbal depiction of crucifixion 300 years before the Carthaginians invented it. So what you see at that point is that the Romans, who have no knowledge of the Bible basically, are making Bible prophecies come true without realizing it. So when we think about so much of the Bible being prophecy, it is important for us that we understand what kind of prophecy. Because somebody could be sitting out there and you're saying, wait a minute. There are prophets like Nostradamus, or there are more modern-day prophets like Edward Case or Gene Dixon who make prophecies. Mark Hitchcock, author and pastor, says it better than anybody else I've ever read. He said, unlike the self-proclaimed prophets of yesterday and today like Nostradamus Nostradamus, Edward Case, or Gene Dixon, Jesus and the biblical prophets did not peddle vague and general predictions that could be adjusted to any situation. Now I know who Mark's talking about right there. He's talking about Nostradamus. If you've ever read the prophecies of Nostradamus, they are so vague, you can just about insert pretty much any stories that you want to insert into that and you can make them fit if you really want to. But he's saying the Bible prophecies are not vague, and they're not, And they're not general, they are not. He said the prophecies recorded in the Bible are detailed and I like this, intricately interwoven. So not only are the prophecies of the Bible specific, they telescope into each other. So that's what makes the Bible different from any other sacred book, it's also what makes the study of the Bible different from any other world religion because world religions, even though they may claim to have some sort of connection to God, They're not going to put themselves on the line like this with this kind of prophecy. And again, one fourth of your Bible is prophecy. So, where do we start? Well, let's start here. I think any of us, regardless of where we come from along the faith spectrum, whether you're a committed Christ follower or you're a non theist, I think all of us would have to agree that we're living in a transitional time. We look at our world today and we know something big is going to happen. We may not know what it is, but I think we all know something big. Is going to happen. There's no way that it can be avoided. For one thing, technology says we are living in transitional times. In the last hundred years, technology has redefined the world as most of its from what most of its previous inhabitants have known. I mean, if you think about what has happened in those 100 years, if you take the millennia of previous generations. So much has happened. The world was redefined multiple times. And frankly, it continues. Technology continues to redefine the world every few years. If you want a mental exercise to prove that point, uh, just see if you can remember the world before the smartphone. I don't remember when the iPhone first came out. I think somewhere for me, I started paying attention to it around 2008. Now, that's just barely a decade ago. And yet, see if you can try to imagine or remember the world before the smartphone because our world's been redefined by it and in just in areas like privacy, in areas like capability and analysis. So technology says we are living in transitional times. There's something else, and that is the evil and the wickedness and the violence that permeates our world says that we're living in transitional times. It is interesting that when Jesus talked about his second coming, He said it would be, the times would be as they were in the days of Noah. And when you study the times of Noah back in Genesis chapter 6, it is interesting how the world points out violence permeating our world. Now, here's the thing. We're so accustomed to the world being as we know it and changing so rapidly, it is difficult for us to take a deep breath and go back 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, even for those of us who live during these times. But just to help us understand how that evil and violence is changing us and pointing to a transitional moment, there were stories 30 years ago, crime stories, stories of obscene violence, that if they had happened 30 years ago, they would have been the story of the decade. Today, they are barely the story of the day. In fact, some of them will not even get out of the local news sphere and get into the national news. I remember when I was 10 years old, there was a shooter who went up into the University of Texas Tower and indiscriminately shot people on the ground. When mass shooting came up, that story was the one referred to basically for a decade and a half. Today, there are so many mass shootings, most of us probably cannot remember the ones that happened this year. Again, we're so familiar with these things happening, it is a challenge for us to realize that our times are very different from even the times we lived in a decade or so ago. There's a third reason why those of us who believe the Bible know that we are living in transitional times, and that is Bible prophecy. You know, if I preached every weekend on the Bible prophecies of the coming of the Lord that were fulfilled that previous week, I would have something to preach on every Sunday, every Saturday for the rest of my career. Because the signs of the return of Christ are being fulfilled so rapidly, it's like dominoes falling. So as we pull back and look at these things and other things, we recognize the fact that we are living in transitional times. Something big is about to happen, candidly speaking, looking at America, looking at the world the way it is today. It cannot, it cannot continue like this without some sort of substantive change happening. So, to go back to the question that we began the talk with, where would we go if we wanted to know the future? Not guess, not project, where would we go if we want to know the future? Well, we've said God is the one who tells the future before it happens. In your Bible, there is a little book in the Old Testament, 12 chapters long, called Daniel. It is a most interesting book, and we're going to be exploring it for the next eight weeks. Daniel is interesting because much, if not most, of the book is prophecy. But there are also narratives in in between. And it's almost like there's a narrative and then a chapter of prophecy, another chapter of narrative, another chapter of prophecy. But it is an extraordinary book. I need to let you know as well, it is perhaps the most hated book in the Bible. Maybe a surprise to you. But interestingly, liberal theologians who deny the miraculous... And it is tragic to see how the liberal theology has really corrupted what used to be mainstream churches. But liberal theologians who teach their future false prophets and definitely those on the secular side of things say that Daniel is not a real book. They say it is a forgery. It is a fake. It is written instead of at 600 or so BC as the Bible would teach, that it was really written in 165 B.C., not in the 6th century B.C., but in the 2nd century B.C. And it is written by this guy we'll call Proto-Daniel. He's not a real character. He's a fictitious character who has pulled a name out of history, and he's writing just stuff about what has happened. Now, why do the critics hate it so much? It is interesting because there are myriad proofs that Daniel was written exactly when the Bible says it is written. And I'll talk about a few of those today. We'll talk about it a lot more in week three. For instance, there is no Daniel of history in 165 B.C. There's no canonical history of a book called Daniel. Uh, And so the question is, why, why do the critics insist that it is a fake, fake book written in the second, B, second century B.C.? Well, there is a very strong reason for that. See, Daniel is not only going to predict what is going to happen in our future in the last days, but Daniel is going to predict with specificity what was going to happen in the next 500 years after he lived. Daniel has been, as we'll see today in the message, he's been carried away as a young man from Judah into Babylon to basically be a captive. And so he is going to talk about what is going to happen at the end of the Babylonian kingdom and the succeeding kingdoms that are going to follow for the next 500 years. Now, when critics look at the book of Daniel, they say, here is our problem. Our problem is his predictions are too perfect, it's too specific. Consequently, since they do not believe in the supernatural, they only can have one conclusion, that the only thing that is possible is he did not write in the 6th century B.C., he wrote in 165 B.C., and he is not writing prophecy, he is writing history, but he's writing it as though it is prophecy. Well, that, um, that point of view is taking a whipping in the last 100 years or so, by archaeology, and, and I promise you, in week three, God willing, the old debater in me is going to come out of mothballs, and I'm going to blow that to smithereens. We'll set that aside for just a little while. But here's the thing. Someone could say, well, I still don't understand why the critics would make such a big thing about Daniel if they're settled in this idea that he only wrote history. I'll tell you why they hate the book of Daniel. It's not the fact that he wrote about the, about the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. Is that he also wrote about what's going to happen next? Daniel tells us so much about the last days. He tells us about the global empire of the last times. Daniel tells us more about the Antichrist than anybody. He tells us about the first coming of Jesus. And then he's going to tell us about the second coming of Jesus. And so you understand why the God haters and the Bible haters hate the book of Daniel, because he's got this pristine prophecy about near-term history. And he also has the prophecy of end-time history. And they're on a slippery slope. If they agree that he knew the next 500 years, then they have to buy into the reality that he also
0: Knew.
1: He also knew the future. But for the very reason why the God-haters hate it, you and I are going to love it. Because Daniel is not only going to tell the future of his times, he's going to tell your future. In fact, week, week three's talk is called Daniel Tells Your Future. Next week, I'm going to bring a message on angels because there's so much about angels in the book of Daniel. If you've ever been curious about that, you, you just want to get a front seat next weekend as we talk about angels. Now, today, however... We're going to begin in chapter one, and if you have a Bible, you might open it to chapter one. If you have an electronic device, just fire it up to chapter one. I am living in this book, spending hours every day studying the book, studying history, and I think each one of these messages I could probably preach for six or eight hours, but as I look at the clock, I only have about 15 to 18 minutes left today, so I'm going to do my best to bring you center cut. What we're going to do is we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to make our start in the series, Clash of Dynasties 2. Now, the reason why chapter 1 is going to be really nice for us to do today is that it's kind of a metaphorical situation. Work, work with me for just a minute. It, it's history, but it's also prophecy in a sense, because it's the history of Daniel as a 15-year-old kid. By the way, if you're 15 years old today you know, or if you're a teenager, don't believe that you have to wait till years in the future to start making God your Lord because Daniel changed the world as a teenager. He becomes the most important person in our world while he's still a teenager. That's mega cool. So here's the thing to think about. Daniel is going to be carried away captive from Jerusalem, Judah, which is God's people, and he is going to be taken away to Babylon, which Babylon is the anti-God. So on one hand, you have this culture of God, Jehovah, Jerusalem, Judah, where Daniel has lived. And now Daniel is going to have to live in a place that is, as we're going to see in just a few moments, it is the quintessential anti-God culture. Well, what does that have to say about us today? You and I, many of us, are God followers and we love God but we are living in what sociologists correctly call the post-Christian era. We're living in a time when if you believe in God, if you believe the Bible, if you believe what God says is true, you're not only in the minority, you're in the margin. And so consequently, we're in Babylon for a while. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we are if we are going to live for God, we're going to have to live countercultural lives. And we're going to have to be comfortable with that and prepare for that and I don't, and oh gosh, I'm gonna give away part of the message right now, and I hate to do this, but I just wanna say this before we go a step further. It doesn't mean that we go into a hole and just wait for Jesus to come back. We're going to see in today's talk how we function successfully, living counterculturally in a post-Christian era. Okay, with that in mind, let's start off, as we said a few moments ago, by looking at the reality that Babylon is the anti-God culture in scripture. And we'll read about Babylon in our text. If you have Daniel chapter one in front of you, look at verse one. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered his chief." of officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians." The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. After that, they were to enter the king's service. Among them were Daniel, and now you're about to see three names. You may not recognize them, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but you may know them from their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So that's what's going on. They've been carried away captive into Babylon. What exactly is Babylon doing? Well, Babylon is going to be the first world empire. There have been other empires before, but they weren't global. Babylon is the first empire to rule the world in this season. One of the things that Nebuchadnezzar, the brilliant king of the Babylonians, understood, and I, and I can't even begin to say how brilliant this is. He understood that one of the challenging challenges with dealing with conquered people was they continued to have their own cultures. And oftentimes, as empires aged, those continued cultures of captured people were the seedbeds through which revolution would start. So Nebuchadnezzar said, instead of just basically conquering people and then leaving them to just pay tribute and to deal with the military, he thought to himself what he would do was he would take the best and brightest young people from these conquered cultures, and instead of bringing them to Babylon as slaves, he would bring them to Babylon on a full ride. I mean, these are the brightest young people, smartest, quickest, most capable young people from these cultures. And for three years, they'd be given this free ride at the University of Babylon. They're going to live in the palace as though they were princes and princesses. They were going to eat food from the king's banquet hall. And then his belief was, and it was genuinely true... That these kids would be so Babylonianized that they would go back and become emissaries and missionaries to their own cultures. And that basically he would change these cultures from the inside. And that is why Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah were brought to Babylon. Now, I'm getting way ahead of myself for a future message, but the delight was instead of Nebuchadnezzar Babylonianizing these four guys, these four guys changed Babylon. And that's beautiful to me. And we'll be talking about that as we go forward in this situation. But one of the things that the Babylonian king wanted was he wanted the ultra elite and the brightest of these young people because the Babylonians were the most advanced culture in the world, especially in mathematics and the sciences. Some of the ancient wonders of the world were in the old city of Babylon, hanging gardens, ziggurat. And even today, you may have a symbol on your body that harks back to the Babylonian's sense of mathematics. You have a watch on 60 seconds equals a minute, 60 minutes equals an hour. Babylonians came up with that. So, of course, they wanted the most brilliant young people they could possibly get. And they bring Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So, that's one place in the Bible that we read about Babylon. But get, there are two more places. See, in the Bible, Babylon isn't just a place. It's not a geographical place as much as it is a system. Now, here's what's interesting to me. Do you know two other places in the Bible where we find Babylon? And we know here it's, it's geographically and chronologically Babylon is where modern-day Iraq is, and it's the kingdom we're looking at is in the 7th century BC. But also there is a Babylon in the book of Genesis, and there is a Babylon in the book of Revelation. Now, I know that's probably like drinking out of a fire hose right now, but what God is showing us is Babylon's more than just a particular geographic historical empire. It is a system. It is a way of thinking. So let's go back to the other two mentions of Babylon in the Bible. We'll look quickly at Genesis, and we'll look at Revelation. In Genesis chapter 11, the first time we read about Babylon in the Bible, the Bible says at one time all the people of the world spoke the same language, used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylon and settled there. They began saying to each other, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united. They all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. What's going on here? Well, first of all, look at the language. They said, let us build. Strange, because it's very similar language to what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, when the Godhead is creating the world, because God said, let us make. And now, 11 chapters later, you have the Babylonians saying, let us recreate the world in our image. And when they built the temple or started out to build the tower that reached into the sky, it was a temple tower. It was, in effect, their attempt to make their own religion. It is the first humanist, secularist religion in the history of the world. Now, it could look like that God is against progress because we just read a moment ago that God said, look, they all speak the same language, use the same words, something's gotta happen or else they'll be able to accomplish anything. It could seem like God was anti-progress, but I think you have proof, if you'll think about it, of why exactly God said that. Because if we know anything about advances, scientific, technological advances, while they bring some benefit, man's nature will always find some way to corrupt it. I mean, think about the internet for a moment. What a wonderful invention. I used it preparing for this message. So many, I, I hate to shop, so I buy almost everything I wear on the internet. It's, so it's got good usages, but isn't it true that for every one good usage, there are probably ten bad usages of it? And so it is. You give humans you give humans any advances, there will be benefits, but they'll also find ways to corrupt it. And God, of course, had several thousand years of things He wanted to accomplish, and so consequently, He undid the Babylonian religion. But the first time we see it is in. The book of Genesis. Now, let's look at the last mention of Babylon in the Bible. This is in Revelation chapter 17. When the Bible talks about the one world last days empire ruled by Antichrist, guess what? God calls this empire. In Revelation 17 verse 3, and this is all metaphorical language, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. That is a euphem- it's not a it's a metaphorical expression of the last empire. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand she held a goblet full of gold go- goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the great. In other words, this is Babylon with an exponent. It's not Genesis Babylon, it's not Neo Babylon of the book of Daniel and the prophets. This is, this is full-blown Babylon. Mystery, great, Babylon the great, mother of all prostitutes. I could see that she was drunk with the blood of God's holy people who are witnesses for Jesus. So as we think about Daniel being carried away into Babylon, it, it, when the Bible says Babylon, even though there was a legitimate nomenclature for that time, Babylon is a system. It's a way of thinking. It is anti-God. If Jehovah God has his city, Jerusalem, then Satan has his city and his system, Babylon. Well, here's my question for the next five or eight minutes of our talk. How do you function in Babylon? If you're a God, now, if if you agree with Babylon, then you're not worried about that. But if you're a God follower, if you're a Jehovah follower, if you're like Daniel or Esther, how do you function when you have to live in Babylon? Well, in the brief time that we can look at chapter one, we're gonna see Daniel's two keys for living in these times. And the first one is you don't let Babylon stop you. From being the best you can be. Now, I'm gonna blow your mind when I say this, but this is biblical from the prophets. As a God follower, Babylon needs you. The system that we're in right now needs you. God would tell these captives who went to Babylon in Daniel's time go to Babylon, build houses, have kids, do your very best, pray. And God said this God said, pray for the peace of Babylon. As a Jewish person, that would be hard to do. And yet God was saying, look, you're there for a reason. You're going to be a blessing to it. And its peace will be your peace. So the first thing we learn from Daniel is, even though he was carried away captive into Babylon, it didn't stop him from being everything that he should be. Let me show you an example of that. We're in Daniel chapter 1. When the kids get carried away to Babylon, they're all teenagers at this point. In verse 7, it says, the chief of staff renamed them with Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the new names of Hanani, Mishael, and Nazariah. Now, you know what they could have done? They could have said, "Yeah, we're not going to deal with that. You know, you're going to give us new names. We don't want new names. And all those names were names that corresponded to Babylonian gods. Historians told us the Babylonians were the most, they were the, they were the most prolific idol worshippers of all time. And they had a god for everything. So consequently, when, when, when Daniel came in, they said, oh, Daniel, that means God is our judge, and we're not into judging here in Babylon. So consequently, what we're going to do is we're going to call you Belteshazzar, which is their way of honoring their God, Baal. Now, you know, if Daniel and his three friends were like a lot of Christians today, they would say, how dare you? We're going to quit right now. But you know what? There's nothing here that says they protested against that. Because you can't change what people call you. In fact, look at this. If you want to see how they reacted to being renamed... Later in this chapter, it says the king, that's Nebuchadnezzar, talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter, that would be Babylonian matters, requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable. These are God followers in Babylon, renamed, given pagan names, and yet when it comes down to taking care of business, they are the best. You know, I think I have to be honest about something here today. There was a lot of preaching on prophecy 30, 40, 50 years ago, and I think for a decade or so, I didn't preach much on prophecy. And the reason I didn't preach much on prophecy, I was wrong about that. But what I had watched is as preachers preached on prophecy, I noticed Christians just saying, okay, we sort of have to hunker down and wait for Jesus to come. You know, this is a very different culture, and I'm not comfortable here, so I'm just going to like... Whoever said that's how we're supposed to live? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, so you live in Babylon. Put the accelerator all the way to the floor. And so Daniel teaches us that. But then he teaches us the second thing. The only thing you can't do is choose Babylon over God. See, here's the thing. Oftentimes we see one of these to the exclusion of the other. Because if you say, well, I can never choose Babylon over God, it would be easy to say, okay, then I need to hide. On the other hand, the other problem exists in which we say, okay, I live in Babylon, but I want to be the best I can be. And the problem with that is if we're not careful, then we can let Babylon begin to change who we are. And we can say, well, you know, I know the Bible says that, but these are different times. Now, if you want to live successfully in Babylon... You got to keep both things in mind. You got to be the best you can be, but you can never choose Babylon over God. And we're going to see that time and time again. Whether it was a lion's den or a fiery fire furnace, or in our story, you know what happened here was um, when they got into the palace, they were told by the king's chief steward, "Okay, guys, you're going to live here. You're going to, you know you're going to have a beautiful room here in the palace, and you know what." you guys have just hit the jackpot because when you're like brought in on a full ride here at Babylon, you eat the same thing the king's eating. So every day you're going to have big porterhouse steak and you're going to have the best vintages of wine. And so you guys just really hit the jackpot. Well, Daniel understood that specifically in the Babylonian way of thinking their meat and their wine was dedicated to idols. It was actually considered a part of idol worship to eat those things. And right after they renamed Daniel, he didn't say anything about that. But the next verse says, but. In other words, I can't change what they call me. But the Bible says, Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. In effect, idolatry was why they got carried away captive. And Daniel is basically saying, if I didn't participate in idolatry back in Judah, I'm not going to start participating in idolatry now that I'm here in Babylon. Daniel just said, not going to do that. And so when the steward came in and Daniel said, you know, sir, it's okay with us uh, that you want us to be here. We'll do a real good job for you, but we're not going to eat the steaks and we're not going to drink the wine. And the steward said, you don't understand if you show up at the king and you look pale and thin, he's going to cut my head off for not doing my job. And Daniel said, okay, here's the deal. For 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables and water. And if we look badly after 10 days, then we'll talk about it again. After 10 days, they look just as healthy as everybody else in this particular situation passed, but it was the first test. But Daniel is teaching us how to live in Babylon. On one hand, he's saying, be the best you can be. They were 10 times broader than anybody else the king looked to for advice, but at the same time, Daniel was saying, we're not going to choose Babylon over God. I only have a very few moments left in this message, but I want to go somewhere with this message. I've been preaching on Daniel since I was a young guy. In fact, yesterday I was listening to a part of the series I preached at our church in 1997 as I preached through the book of Daniel. Every time I preach this story, there are some people I want to know, and I don't get to know because the Bible doesn't tell us about them. I want to know Daniel's parents. I want to know Hananiah, and I, and Azariah's parents because they're so different. I mean, Their own country was steeped in idolatry. That's why God let them go into captivity. They live in Babylon, and yet they live as committed God followers. I always want to know who had influence in their lives. And my gut tells me that when we get to heaven, we're going to find out Daniel's mom and dad taught him to live a different way. But the one thing that I do have is I know what Daniel's pastor preached to him. And as a pastor preaching to all of us who live in Babylon until Jesus comes back. I find that salient to my life. What is a preacher supposed to preach in these days? Because evidently Daniel's pastor got through to him. Well, here's the deal. If you ever look at those little books at the end of the Old Testament and all those weird names, there is a little book that you might not have read very many times called Zephaniah. Zephaniah's Daniel's pastor. And the cool thing about Zephaniah is when you look, you can see what Zephaniah preached and what Daniel listened to and what transformed his life. I've got a minute here. You want to pull over to the side of the road and take a little look at this? I mean, first of all, Zephaniah's talking about the times he was living in. And, and again, he's not talking about atheists here. He's talking about those who claim to be God followers. And here's, here's what he said the times were like. He said in verse 5, they claim to follow the Lord, but they worship Molech too. In other words, with one hand, they, they say they worship God. On the other hand, they worship Babylon. Then in verse 6, it says, they used to worship me, but they no longer do. Verse 12, they sit complacent in their sins. Sit complacent. What would that say to us today? So Pastor Zephaniah was preaching to you know, 13-year-old Daniel in his church, and Zephaniah is saying, these, these are what the times are like. Okay? I think we find instant similarity there. But Zephaniah just didn't talk about the problems of the time. He, he gave advice For God followers, how they should live. Let's read this because this is really important. Zephaniah said, these are the problems inside the family of God. But for those of you who will listen, here's what you need to do. First of all, he said, act now. So in other words, if something needs to be changed in your life, don't say in six weeks, I'll take care of it. He's saying, TCOB now. Take care of business. Then he says, seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow his commands. I was telling him at breakfast this morning, this is the biggest line to me out of this. He said, seek to do what is right. That's a very important statement. Because see, a lot of times you and I have the idea that there's right and wrong, and we're gonna come to a junction in the road, and on one side, one road is right, one side is wrong, and the idea is choose it. Zephaniah is saying, look, this culture is so whacked, it may be that you don't just choose between the right road and the wrong road. You're gonna have to look for the right road. Because it's so counterculture to live for God, you're going to have to seek to do what is right. Because, you know, sometimes you can be better than the culture around you, but we can have really a lot of issues still at that moment. Now, the next thing that he preached, I find especially important, he said, gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away. Gather. That's interesting. Why was Zephaniah telling God's people who would listen to gather? Because the closer you get to Babylon, the fewer and fewer God followers there are going to be. And if you're isolated, well, this is the reason why you come to church. I don't preach on this a whole lot today, but the Bible does tell us in the book of Hebrews 10.25, Let us not neglect our church meetings, as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now... That the day of his coming back is drawing near. So the closer we get to Babylon, we're also getting closer to the coming of the Lord. And the Bible is saying gather. It's important for people who love God to get together and feel the encouragement of others who love God. In chapter 2, we'll get to this later. Daniel is gonna have a real test because Nebuchadnezzar is mad and he's gonna whack all the wise men <clears throat> because he doesn't, they don't know his dream and he wants them to tell them what the dream means. So because they can't do what he wants them to do, he's gonna just kill them all. And Daniel now, his three friends, are now part of that group. And Daniel, at this moment, recognizing that they're all about to die, he calls together his three friends and they have a prayer meeting. And that's what Zephaniah taught him to do. Zephaniah is saying, look, the closer you get to judgment and the coming of the Lord, the more you want to collect together with people who believe in God. It's also why, and this is not a commercial, but I'm just telling you the truth, this is also why it's so important for you to be in a connection group here at New Spring. Because you want to get together with others who believe the truth. Well, I'm out of time, and we're just getting started. And there's a lot of prophecy that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks. A lot of exciting stories, but we made a start. But I hope, if you got anything out of today's message, I hope you understand that Babylon's not just a geographic empire locked in time. It's a world system. And you and I are living in Babylon, and there are two keys to living in Babylon. The first one is you need to be the best you can be, and the second one is you never choose Babylon over God. Whatever the culture says about Life and truth and God and gender and sexuality. You can't choose Babylon over God or you'll be on the wrong side. And you say, well, Mark, I am a God follower in these times and and I'm afraid. I'm afraid to stand with God. I I get that. I feel that too. It is dawning. It is daunting to believe the Bible in these times. Because there are all kinds of there are all kinds of saccharine, phony indictments for people who believe in God. Words like intolerant and hater, no one ever really defines those terms, do they? They're just sort of thrown around to intimidate, intimidate you. I've lived my life as a leader and as a husband and a father, trying my best to do something. And that is to take the long look. If you work for me and you spend a lot of time with me, you know that when situations come up, I always challenge us to take the long look. And by that, I mean, don't just look at today. Look at where you're going to be six weeks from now, six months from now, six years from now. And that's a, that's a statement that I think about often. Take the long look. So for all of us here today who live in Babylon, and we will do that until Jesus comes, what would it be like to take the long look? Because if you do stand for God, you're going to be probably more ostracized as we go along here because living for God is so countercultural to Babylon. It is God versus Satan, ultimately. That's the clash of dynasties. Well, let's look at Daniel. We open Daniel chapter one. I always like to read the first verse of the chapter and the last verse of the chapter. And I don't think the Holy Spirit, I don't think he put these verses in here loosely because in verse one, it just simply says, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. What it simply says in verse one is Babylon rules, Nebuchadnezzar is in charge and Daniel is a slave. That is the story. That is the near term. That is the short term view of things. Babylonian rules. Judah is wiped out. Nebuchadnezzar is sole regent. And Daniel is a slave. Look at the last verse of Daniel chapter 1. It just says, Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Cyrus is not a Babylonian. Cyrus is a Persian. Do you get what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us here? I mean, first of all, let me give you this. Cyrus was the benevolent Persian king who allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild their homeland, but that's 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 for another day. What is God trying to tell us here? That even though Daniel went to Babylon a slave and Babylon ruled the world and Nebuchadnezzar was king, when all the smoke was cleared and Babylon no longer existed, Daniel was still standing. You got to pick your empire. You got to pick your dynasty. There's no middle ground. It's either Babylon or it's Jehovah. It's either this world system or it's truth. You have to pick your dynasty. For me, that was settled when I was eight years old. And I've been over the water fountain of of a public school building in Fort Worth, Texas. And just as I've been over to get a drink, I remembered something that my dad had preached the day before. He said, if you will ask God, he will forgive you of all your sins and save you. And even though I was eight years old, I had a lot of sin in my life. (laughs) And that sounded like too good a deal to pass up. And so even though I was bending over a water fountain to get a drink never said a word in my heart, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart and life. And I chose my king and I chose my dynasty and I chose my destiny. And while we're pulling over to the road and we're stopping today, I don't want to end this service without giving you an opportunity to invite Jesus into your life. I'm five minutes over time. Can I tell you a two-minute story and I'll be finished? When I, I, when I was in elementary school, it was first through sixth grade. And so junior high was seven through ninth, but they changed it while I was there. So I was only at my junior high school, middle school for two years. So when I was coming to the end of the sixth grade, I was familiar with uh, achievement tests. Iowa basic skills is what we used in those days. But after we took the Iowa test of basic skills, the teacher gave us another set of achievement tests like a second, second week or so before the end of the school year. And she said, and these were like the little tests where you just mark it with the number two pencil, you know, the little circles. You had question book and answers, answer sheet. She said, um, look, when you finish taking this particular test, and there were about 10 or 12 of them, she said, uh, they were time tests. You can read a book. Well, I, I'm a voracious reader, and I had a book I was really interested in, and I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to mark these circles at random. I'm going to read my book. I got through with those tests really quick. So I went on into to Forest Oak, my, my middle school. What I did not know was that test was in order to position you in whatever class you need to be in in middle school. Did you need to be in accelerated? Did you need to be in honors? Did you need to be in a regular class? Did you need to be in a remedial class? Well, I wound up in all remedial classes. <laughs> and I'm an A student. And it was the weirdest thing in the world because I didn't really put, I didn't connect the dots. My first week in school, I, I noticed that my teachers were looking at me kind of strange because I'd answer questions in class and this kind of thing. And so it wasn't long before they started transferring me. And I went from remedial to regular classes and then to honors classes and even to some accelerated classes. But I remember the process during those days. We had what we called attendance cards and the, that's, we used to use paper, folks. This is a long time ago. Um, <laughs> But every student had an attendance card with a schedule on it. And and so what I would have to do is the teacher would say, take your attendance card and go to this class. And I would be transferred out of this class to the next class. When the Bible talks about salvation, it uses a very similar illustration. It says, we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. It doesn't say we earned it. We've been transferred And you know what? If you're willing to invite Jesus Christ into your life, it's as if God will give you your attendance card and so you're no longer part of this kingdom. Report to Jesus Christ. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom. Thanks. Old people do that. They like to tell stories about themselves when they were young. I'm serious as I can be right now. If you want to be transferred, what do you have to do? You just have to Ask. You have to believe that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that he rose from the grave and then ask him to come into your life and then God will transfer you. You ready for that? Could you use an upgrade, an eternal upgrade, the upgrade? Then pray with me. I'm gonna pray this line slowly so you can decide if you wanna say it. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't fix myself, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from his grave. And since he's alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. Transfer me in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer, go straight to any info center. There's a gift box I've got waiting for you. It's free. It won't cost you anything. Bible like I preach from, a book I've written that will answer questions. Please stop by and get one. Thank you for being here. Next week, we talk about angels. See you soon.